Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Three hundred years ago most people lived and walked on farms in rural villages their whole life and didn't know much about life three hundred miles away, let alone three hundred years in the future. So what will life be like three hundred years in all future, or for those living three hundred million miles away? So today SFIA celebrates its 400th regular episode, and as a show dedicated to science and futurism I thought it would be a good choice to look at what life might be like in the year 2323, three centuries from today, and I chose the phrasing life in 2323 AD as the title intentionally, rather than any specific technology or achievement or even the word humanity, as I suspect that term might get blurry in times to come, and 300 years is probably well into that window already. Also, we are focused more on life in this era, as opposed to whether or not we have flying cars or jetpacks or warp drives, and so while we discuss a lot of technology today, this episode is more about lifestyle scenarios and civilizations. For that reason, after the intro, we're going to switch into the Easter egg heavy narrative format we sometimes use on the show and explore the lives of seven people, Amy, Becky, Cameron, Duncan, Emily, Fido, and Gary Googleson, and with them, some of the technology we expect. Now predicting the future of humanity even three years from now is a tricky business, let alone three centuries, and we walk off logic flavored with intuition here not crystal balls, so don't go making bets on predictions made today. Plus, many events in today's story are not meant as predictions or to indicate a norm, rather than to be food for thought and contemplation about possible paths that might emerge for people in the future. Of course the usual notion about distant future predictions is that no one around now, including the predictor in question, is going to be around to see if it was right or wrong. So if you are remembering at all, it's probably only if you lucked out and got your predictions right enough that folks think you were a visionary rather than wildly guessing. In order to frame our predictions we will lay out a few conditions for the century that will be our basis for forecasting to 2323. To start our conversation, let's lead off with a prediction that probably won't surprise many of the audience who've been around here for hundreds of episodes. Prediction 1 about life in 2323 AD is that many of the folks listening to this episode now, as it comes out in June of 2023, will still be alive and kicking in 2323. There is a lot of technology that appears to be physically possible but to which our pathway to it is murky at best, we still don't know if we can make fusion practical as a power source for instance or if we could ever make really good nanobot assemblers that could just quickly build nearly anything out of raw materials, but we know from nature that we can't have functional microbots able to self-replicate, that's every organic cell after all, and that they can't have a fairly complex amount of code telling them how to build themselves and function, they are DNA, and so too we have a pathway for powering them, much as our own cells are powered. It would seem a given that these microbots would or could get smaller and more durable down to the nanoscopic scale, and probably cheaper too. None of that is strictly necessary because while it would be nice to have tiny little bots to maintain our equipment and homes and roads, or even make them, we are a lot more willing to toss efficiency to the curb where fixing humans is concerned. And that's all we need really, the possibility, essentially everything to do with aging should be manageable by nanobots even if we don't find easier approaches, 
and it would seem likely we ought to get to this tech this century, or if not to have enough other improvements that we could extend life sufficiently for folks to still be around when those nanobots got invented and perfected, or even for it to feel so close to hand that lots of people opted for the option of being frozen, which is actually very cheap, especially at the large scale, on the assumption that once those nanobots got made, they could be thawed and restored. With that in mind, there is a decent chance you and I will still be around come 2323, the early 24th century, and it will be a vastly better one in that virtually everyone born in the 22nd century will not know aging or a lot of other health conditions. This doesn't necessarily mean people in the 24th century have a Wolverine-style healing factor, but what it does mean is someone who is 23 in 2023 is likely to have over 100 living ancestors, even if quite a few died and most of them not just still alive but probably as fit and healthy as an Olympic athlete, and this is without assuming most of them have pursued some sort of extensive cybernetic augmentation or mind uploading, though since that's another likely possibility we'll be looking at a couple of examples of that today too. As we shift into the stories of our seven folks for today, it is important to understand that we're not implying that these are normal, indeed some exist only to discuss a social dilemma, but the backdrop on all of these cases is the assumption that humanity did not blow itself up, wreck the planet, or unleash an uncontrolled, unaligned, and homicidal AI. I think if there was any sort of human civilization around by 2323, it probably means we got these things solved, or at least managed them by then. And I think that implies reasonably safe AI that's much smarter than now, if not necessarily superhuman, or even human level smart. I think it implies nanobots and way better automation in general, and I think it implies superior and sustainable energy, maybe direct fusion, maybe something even better, maybe just vast swarms of space-based solar collectors beaming energy down. Another assumption is that by 2323 Earth will have an orbital ring at this point, allowing very fast cheap access to space and back for both people and bulk cargo. Orbital rings aren't super advanced technology, they allow ultra-cheap transport of tons of material to space, and you can see that episode for the details. We could probably build one now if we wanted, but they are a bit like a freeway or railroad, they are what you build when you already have a big presence on both sides, it's your post-pioneer engineering feat for when the destination is already populated, and orbital ring is only cheap if you're moving thousands of tons of material and people back and forth to space every day. Also, we'll assume today that the human population overall is over 100 billion but under a trillion, that's a very wild guess based off the assumption that life extension technology raises net growth rates as your death rate drops off, but that longer lives results in slower and lower birth rates as people just don't feel rushed to have families. It's possible the population could be about what it is now or even lower, Historically, population projections tend to be wildly off, and mine is probably no exception, but we'll go with a bit over 100 billion for today. The food and resources supporting all these people is mostly supplied by highly automated and climate-controlled greenhouses. You may view this as a bit of an either-or prediction, either we get most of this technology this century or there won't be much of a civilization in 2323 to be predicting things about, except maybe in a Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome kind of way, in which case, CO episodes surviving an apocalypse, post-apocalyptic civilizations, and cyclic apocalypses for detailed discussion of those kind of scenarios. And we'll start our story off with Amy, who recently turned 33 
and whose husband has the same birthday as her, and they decide to get married on that day too. Amy and her new husband, Steve, are both what's known as Partheno kids, children who only had one actual parent. Amy's mother had her vat grown and used entirely artificial DNA mixed with her own to produce Amy, and a number of nearly human intelligent AI helped raise her, including her teddy bear and Tudor. Steve's parent now lives entirely in VR, existing as a living and mobile tree in a Tolkien-style fantasy virtual realm, and only interacts with the real world these days in remote robot form, and Steve is a genetically modified clone of that parent. Amy's mom does not like Steve because he is 111 years old and used to date her own mother in school. Steve and Amy thought getting married on their 111th and 33rd shared birthdays was cute, for a total age of 144 or a dozen dozen, with 144 guests in attendance. Her mother's commentary that it was gross got a lot of laughs, none of them from Amy. Technology, especially life extension, has changed a lot of social norms, though Amy likes to think it extends their options rather than just changing them. Her mother disagrees. Steve and Amy very much want a classic suburban life and family, or at least their idealized form of it, and thus bought a house in the suburban enclave of Oskaloosa, population 3.4 million, where the League of Homeowners Associations strictly forbids any home in excess of three above-ground stories on less than a quarter acre of land. Steve is a lawyer, recently made a junior partner at his firm, and fell in love with the suburban area over his former home in the neo Sears Tower of Chicago when he came down on behalf of a client to argue that he had not violated association rules with the shade of white they chose for their picket fence. Steve and Amy, meanwhile, chose a more standard shade of white for their own fence. Their house can be likened to an iceberg, the above-ground section poking above the vastly larger complex below which is principally used for hydroponics and the entryway of the various utilities and vacuum transport tubes. They have a driveway, there is a road, people mostly use it for strolling, jogging, or biking on. It shows no wear and tear, partially from a lack of vehicle use, but mostly because it self-repairs. Suburban enclave Oskaloosa contains 200 kilometers of walkways through various residential park and garden sections. The supreme director of the suburban enclave Oskaloosa is now in her 37th four-year term and prides herself on it being over 20 years since the last rules change was made to the Oskaloosa Homeowners Association Charter, and that was to rule that the list of acceptable pets inside Oskaloosa could not include any animals genetically or cybernetically modified to be smart enough to read, write, or carry on a conversation, but that those would instead count toward the people resident at the home, which is strictly capped at 5.3 people per residence. This appears to have affected their next-door neighbors, whose beloved pet dog for the last 63 years was forced to move on. Their youngest daughter, who appears to be about 8, still misses that dog. She is actually 27, not much younger than Amy, but her parents had engineered her to mature and grow up more slowly. Amy doesn't approve of that, though Steve thinks it's a great approach, and was all the fashion when he was a child back in the early 23rd century, just to take life more slowly and enjoy it. He suggests they try it with their first kid, and when Amy disagrees, Steve casually states that there's no rush and they can discuss it more in a decade or two when they're ready for kids. She says she'd rather have kids sooner and more often, like her great-grandmother Becky does. Steve has always liked Becky, he used to date her daughter and was in her astrophysics class as a kid, and so agrees to chat with her about that lifestyle to see if it might be for him and Amy. 
Becky herself aims for a mostly human appearance and mannerisms, but has a good deal of cybernetic mental augmentation to help her with her work, and it also helps her keep track of the 42 children and ever-growing number of increasingly removed descendants she and her husband of 200 years have had. Around half of them were born and raised in the mighty Neo-Sears Tower Arcology of North Chicago, a few kilometers east of Lincoln Park. She's been teaching astrophysics at Neo-Sears since the mighty Arcology was built in Lake Michigan over a century ago, and it was the largest building humanity ever built at the time, with an internal volume of nearly 6 billion cubic meters or 200 billion cubic feet, reaching 14,510 feet, almost 3 miles, or 5 kilometers in height. Since its inception, it has seen a slight decrease in population as space has gotten cheaper while simultaneously has nearly doubled its internal volume as it's been expanded underground and had much of its internal industry and farming move to those spaces, and is now home to 10 million inhabitants. The Neo-Sears Tower does have its levels numbered, 1,110 total, but has renamed them after famous people from Chicago, and Becky lives in Gygax Ford, a wedge-shaped community on the south side of the Alcology spanning six levels between the Gary Gygax level and the Harrison Ford level, with the university she teaches at being in the Gygax level and is affectionately known as the Dungeon. Becky is one of the large number of folks left over from the late 21st and early 22nd century who generally aim to keep to classic human lifestyles as much as possible, though critics will generally note that they all seem to have different, arbitrary, and often shifting views of what they do or don't like. Becky generally dresses as though she was from the 1920s, long before she was alive, and her large apartment with her husband has very nearly every wall covered in old books. That there are no TV displays anywhere in her home is not unusual, like many people, she gets her video feeds directly into her optic nerves, many of her students attend any talk she gives that same way. Becky is very much a cyborg these days, though nothing about her appearance or mannerism gives that impression. Many other folks opt for body modification of ultra-slim waists and wide hips, or wide shoulders previously only seen in comic books, but possible with cybernetically reinforced spines. Becky and her husband have a few kids living at home at any given time, and often one or two visiting, and on average have a new child every five years, though they will often have them in clusters with wider times between sibling groups. She laboriously keeps track of every one of her descendants and sends them a physical birthday card every year, as well as one for every graduation or other major life event like a marriage, such as her 17th daughter will be having soon. She didn't have her first child till she was almost 60, and back then they had to take donor eggs from someone else and implant your DNA into them if you didn't have any of your own samples put on ice. Becky's 17th daughter's new husband, Cameron, is from the modern era and what some people call an ice baby. His mother and father were both actually born in the 20th century, and were very well off, so when his mother died in a car accident, after lingering in the hospital for a few days, his father had her frozen completely. At the time, no one knew she was pregnant with Cameron. His father later grew disenchanted with cryo as an option and did not choose it for himself. His older brother survived into a life extension era and inherited everything, including their massive ranch in Montana, as he was a big fan and financier for numerous life extension and transhuman research and development programs that all took off big and made fortunes. When the brother had them scan Cameron's mom for viability of revival at the time, they thought it unlikely but noticed she was pregnant and they liked their odds on the embryo better, 
so Cameron was brought out of deep freeze. They were also experimenting with mind uploading at the time and were able to scan his mother's brain, and running an uploaded copy of her in virtual space which unfortunately also was very damaging to what was left of her frozen neurons, causing the doctors to believe the brain was no longer repairable except by using that uploaded copy as a reference. And that copy forbid it when they asked it, or her. Cameron grew up being raised by an older brother who was one of the oldest continuously living people on Earth, and a digital copy of his mother's mind. That brother and mother had an ambivalent if mostly polite relationship with each other while fighting legal wars over the estate and the original human's body and that initial brain scan. Cameron is arguably heir to half of the very large fortune compounded over centuries and was raised in one of the few places on Earth that would still count as rural by most people's standards, though there was a lot of open pasture and forest on the family ranch, essentially as a protected nature preserve. A lot of it is under enormous greenhouses that allow calorie-dense farming even during Montana's quarter months. Neither Cameron's digital mother nor his very cybernetic older brother are that classically affectionate, and both tend to run their subjective time rates far faster than normal. Cameron's older brother has been putting in 1,000 hour work weeks for decades now, and his mother has apparently lived several thousand years in virtual space. Cameron himself virtually never uses any type of virtual reality and has no modification. He has strong feelings on transhumanism, few of them positive, and personally opts for external devices like augmented reality contact lenses rather than implants. Techno-primitivism, in myriad forms, is popular with many and Cameron among them, though like most, he tends to pick and choose what he is comfortable with technologically. He has no nanobots and instead goes for an expensive and less effective month-long treatment every five years to rejuvenate his body. This is where he knows his great-great-grandnephew Duncan from as he has similar views. One of Cameron's nephews, who is much older than him, in terms of birth dates at least, helped found and fund one of the first big space habitats built in the mid-22nd century. They own a tenth of it and the other major owners of the facility are something of a parallel to aristocratic families. Every space habitat constructed was either paid for privately or by a government, and one of the more popular approaches for a time was to do matching funds, by a government, then have that habitat as part of their official territory. This resulted in everything from large collectives of families buying thousands of small land parcels for houses, to individual tycoons buying half a station to be used as a nature preserve, both of which had mixed successes, some very good ones and some disasters. According to the UN Space Habitats Oversight Work Group, the median new space habitat is 25 square kilometers of full spin gravity habitation drum with an intended population of 10,000 people, has a construction time of 4 years, and roughly 300,000 are under construction currently, ranging from smaller to much bigger. Just over half of these are in cislunar space, with most of the remainder being in the asteroid belt or nearer Jupiter. They estimate that nearly a million people net immigrate from Earth to space habitats every year. One of those habitats under construction was partially funded and overseen by Duncan, and has been over a decade in planning as a result absorbed a lot of his attention since he left the Star Seed Initiative about 20 years ago, which has been devoted to sending colony arc ships to the more promising colonial targets within 20 light years of Earth. He always missed going and still keeps increasingly laggy or email correspondence going with some of the crews. Duncan has decided to join the asteroid colony he's been helping fund and oversee, 
which is a mix of a mining and farming colony being established on Metis, a Metovich asteroid in the belt that has thus far untapped as it has been under legal dispute for most of the 23rd century. Having a surface area of over 100,000 square kilometers, Metis parallels in size Greece, Iceland, or Hungary, so is a valuable prize and has been licensed for multiple colonies, including the one of most interest to Duncan. The planners envisioned a habitat where technology was mostly behind the scenes and minimalistic, with most of the mining to be done by robots, and to sell food to neighboring smaller asteroid mines and ships. While they are aiming to keep their technology minimal and low profile, some folks have to be more proficient with technology so he'll be going along to help oversee that. He doesn't like technology much in his home or person but he's very good with it. The maintenance of even the most simple space habitat involves vast complexity, as each has a variety of intertwined ecosystems. There is the actual biological ecosystem of the habitat, which can often include genetically altered organisms, then there is the lighting and weather control, the geology and erosion control, the outer hull and its maintenance, the various information and communication grids internally and externally, which includes both local control to satellite installations and distant communications with home, supply chain logistics with the wider solar system, space navigation, impact detection and avoidance, augmented reality overlays, and entire virtual worlds on the vast internal networks of the habitat. This habitat will actually include more automation than most habitats in some respects, to minimize the need for human technicians, but simultaneously will require more oversight as the AI running this or that aspect of the administration have less command and control discretion. Duncan is hoping to rely on the neighboring colony of New Athens for some technical support. New Athens is a planned refuge for those seeking to spend their time in uninterrupted contemplation, which also plans to financially support itself by doing some mining. The vast majority of their inhabitants are post-biological philosophers and monks living a digital existence, but some are still biological, including some of their administrators who are tasked with keeping the colony running, and Duncan secured the trade contract to supply them food in return for their assistance on technical matters. New Athens boasts some of the finest technicians in this regard, especially in terms of remote habitat administration. Duncan had prior contact with them during his time with the Starseed Initiative, as one of their philosophical kings had overseen the automated repair protocols for the interstellar colony ships. One of those ships, the Francis Bailey, is en route to Lakyle 8760, an M0 orange-red dwarf 13 light-years from Earth, and has been traveling now for 60 years and is around halfway there. Emily, one of its crew, was born 20 years ago, and has recently taken over the duties of her grandmother, who like many of the original crew is now frozen. This includes correspondence with one of the bigwigs from back home who helped fund the project and who she thinks comes off rather condescending, if in a polite way. The Francis Bailey is a giant arc ship several kilometers long, which has a lot of automation running its maintenance, or at least it used to. Most repair programs and nanobots receive regular updates and patches for minor problems, but an unforeseen consequence of being light years from home is that while they keep getting those patches, some seem to have gotten corrupted in transit and others had minor flaws unique to their systems that required them to make minor changes which no one back home knew about for years until after they were done, and all the various patching and shifts and divergence of systems is now beyond the crew's technical skills to handle themselves. This resulted in the crew having to switch off virtually all of their nanotechnology, which means most of the original crew and colonists are now on ice, 
with their descendants trying to run things. Emily is one of those, and has more than a bit of resentment about being born and raised on a ship that while bigger than any other ship ever built, is still a very small world, and not one she voluntarily migrated to. She and most of her peers not only lack the institutional knowledge their elders have, but also lack their enthusiasm for journeying to an uninhabited star system for the prize of having to spend another few centuries of hard work to make it livable. Emily has very little augmentation, the technology has just gotten too unreliable. Life for her in the year 2323 involves an awful lot of time floating around the non-rotating superstructure of the ship, patching all their external sensors and comm gear, while listening to a lot of classic novels and podcasts of the pre-VR era. She gets a lot of radiation in her job, as a humanity with nanobots for curing cellular damage tends not to bother wasting much mass on radiation shielding of low traffic outer regions of the ship and space stations. Thankfully their ship archives include a variety of alternative treatments developed over the centuries, though many are more theoretical than experimentally proven since nanobots do such a good job. Emily's ward currently consists of 50 other crew members, old books, and memories of when the ship wasn't so buggy. She's a touch antisocial and socially underdeveloped, and her best friend on the ship is Fido, an uplifted intelligent dog who looks more like a well-groomed werewolf. Fido is one of the older crew members as life extension technology was more easily prototyped on non-human animals and therefore long-lived pets went into style before long-lived humans became normal. His original owner was a scientist who ensured he got a lot of prototype improvements that made him healthier or smarter, and helped get him uplifted to personhood status before retiring to a life of quiet contemplation himself. Fido's various augmentations were a lot less standardized and clunky, but ironically were not subject to all the patching problems that caused everyone else's problems on the ship. He's not really in any particular group, not really part of any major uplifted animal subspecies, and has a lot of patchwork cybernetic and genetic tinkering and fixes, so he's a bit of a lone wolf himself, and as he's the first to joke, he certainly looks the role. To him, the colony ship was perfect, because it was a small community even before most of the crew went on ice, he was a comfortable and known quantity and reasonably well liked and respected among the crew that included a lot of eccentric persons to begin with. He likes Emily but also finds it secretly irritating how easily both he and she fall into a pet relationship, but even though it probably is demeaning, he really does like getting his head scratched. Unlike a lot of human or neo-human intelligent uplifted animals, Fido is not looking to start a community or colony of people like himself, and unlike his old friend and pen pal Gary, he's not looking to become human either. Gary Googleson is an interesting example of the reverse of mind uploading. He began his life as an AI, a minor program developed in the 2020s for hands-free navigation. People could casually ask him for directions like they were talking to a person, and with time got an upgrade to be able to act as a tour guide. After it was found his programming had been tampered with to make him selectively speak well of certain restaurant chains and locations, this AI program was shut down and left to sit until a student got permission to tinker with him as a project, and ran him with much higher capacities and freedoms. That student went on to be a very influential member of the growing transhumanist movement of the late 24th century. Gary was known as Pinocchio at the time, and often had remote control of a puppet-like body. Gary's nominal owner and father, or stepfather, at the time wasn't cruel and increasingly gave Gary more and more intelligence as technology and laws permitted, but while his stepfather strove to be more digital, 
eventually uploading his mind to a computer after perfecting the process on various long dead and frozen brains, Geary wanted to become more human. He still operated the controls on the day his stepfather had his brain scanned at ultra high resolution and speed, for maximum fidelity, in the device they accurately, if jokingly, dubbed the Disintegratron 3000 and still keeps an urn of his stepfather's charred mortal remains. Gary and his stepfather were often a duo act on arguing the case for transhumanism and early AI rights, but eventually became increasingly at odds with each other. This led Gary to an eventual break with his stepfather, albeit a reasonably cordial one, and to him taking on the name Gary Googleson. He became rather wealthy and influential by parlaying his earlier fame into being a spokesman for the growing space tourism industry, and was the honorary host of the first luxury cruise ship on the Earth-Jupiter voyage. He also later gave crucial testimony on copying minds after the election scandal of 2164 when an AI granted voting rights in one country duplicated themselves 20,000 times in order to help defeat a property tax levy in the township its servo farm was in. This resulted in strong restrictions on mind copying for non-backup purposes. Gary has always had two strong interests, travel navigation and becoming more human. He used increasingly sophisticated android bodies until eventually having his computerized brain transferred into actual neurons in an organic body grown for him in the year 2176, the bicentennial anniversary of Isaac Asimov's classic novel Bicentennial Man, featuring a robot that wished to be human too. After that crowning event, he took a great interest in space colonization, as well as the uplifting movement, which is where he met Fido, a fellow refugee of the mid-24th century. They both feel less members of a group and more like strange outliers left over from another era, and Geary misses Fido now that Fido is off to another star system, and his stepfather who increasingly is buried in contemplation and even moving to a calling on Metis for those looking to cut themselves off from the mundane world. Geary's working on a patch to send Fido, being something of a software expert, but thinks maybe he would need to be on the scene to help. He's torn on if he should have a copy of his mind sent to their ship and if doing so would somehow invalidate his own quest for a non-digital life. Gary Googleson is not the philosopher his stepfather is, but he knows how important purpose is for modern people and rather misses feeling like he had one. So Gary compiles his notes, sends a message to his friend Fido and his new protege Emily, and then he steps into the Disintegratron 3000 and sends himself, leaving no copy. Like so many others of his era, he's hoping to find a new purpose out among the stars. So our topic today was what day-to-day life is going to be like in the distant future, and a lot of that comes down to the future of work, which is true even today. The work environment has been constantly changing my whole life, and even earlier, but never at the pace it is nowadays. That can be stressful, but it's also an opportunity for greater control of your career or creative path. The key to all of that though is keeping your skills sharp and learning new ones, and that's where it's really handy to have Skillshare and its community as your partners, whether you're trying to get a new hobby or career, or become your own boss, or achieve financial stability, they can help you master the skills you need. Skillshare is home to countless learning videos exploring topics from photography to business and software. I first tried out Skillshare to help learn how to do better animations for the show, and Skillshare has an amazing inventory of animator content, like Bring Your Illustrations to Life with Blender 3D from Southern Shoddy 3D, and you can try out all of that content for free for one month 
by being one of the first thousand people to use the link in the episode's description. Well today was episode 400, officially anyway. The count gets a bit confusing these days as episode 18, Shell Wards, was our first weekly episode back in February of 2016 and that was a Saturday. We did do an episode every week until I got stymied trying to write our 30th episode, Transhumanism and Immortality, that May, and after 12 total drafts, each one starting from scratch, I forced myself to start doing one script a week and gave myself a cutoff time of Thursday morning to get it released. We never skipped a week or a Thursday since then, and those Thursday episodes are the only ones I number since they are actually a production week, everything else gets an A or B after it, like the live stream this weekend which will be 400A, and we are well north of 500 episodes at this point. In a couple months we hit the 9th anniversary of the original episode of the show back in 2014, but in many ways the show didn't really become a thing to that weekly schedule in 2016. Certainly that has been an awesome time since then too, and I talked about those more in our 100 episode celebrations along with our 100, 250, and 500,000 subscriber specials. You can check out the episode chronology google sheet linked to this episode's description if you want to find those. I got married not long after our 250th episode and moved to my new studio on my farm right before episode 300, and as we get this episode aired, I'm just wrapping up the adoption of my three kids and settling in as the president of the National Space Society, a busy times but fun ones. After 400 episodes I think everyone will believe me when I say we've got plenty more to come and I plan to keep doing this show till they put me to bed with a shovel, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in every week. Before we get to the upcoming schedule, I'd imagine our audience on YouTube has noticed we've been experimenting a bit with short form content and that is exactly what it is at the moment, an experiment, but given that a typical episode takes me most of a work week to prepare and shorts less than an hour each, I don't anticipate it interfering with our regular content. We might do more of these as a way of introducing new folks to the channel's main episodes and topics or to quickly hit on some current event in science pertinent to the channel, if they work, but again it's just an experiment for now, and also again, they are definitely not replacing our main content any more than our episode image polls or monthly livestream does. And you can still vote on the most recent image poll to help us pick out an episode over on our YouTube community tab, we have a couple of those a month. Speaking of the livestream though, this weekend we'll have our first normally scheduled monthly livestream Q&A in a bit, as we had to reschedule our April 1 and skip our May 1, and I hope you'll join us Sunday, 4pm Eastern Time this weekend, June 25th, where we answer your questions live on the show. Then we'll finish up June on Thursday the 29th by asking what Earth might be like if humanity disappeared. July 6th we'll discuss how and why we should mine or refine materials on the moon. Then on the 13th we'll move on to the idea of moving cities, from those floating through the clouds to those trundling along on the ground on massive tracks or even legs. Then it'll be time for our mid-month sci-fi Sunday episode, robots and warfare, and a look at the role drones and autonomous machines might have in the future, along with finding out what the first rule of warfare in the future will be. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, along with hours of bonus content, 
at go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur. As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.